I uh, have learned in my 32 years of life and have discovered that things do not always turn out the way that I expect them to. Um, I've found in my 32 years of life that things don't always turn out the way that I want them to. Anyone else ever uh, come to that conclusion in their life? Um, Maybe it took you less years than my 32, but it took me 32 years to figure that out. That things do not always happen. Sometimes things don't go the way we want because of our own ambitions. Sometimes things don't go the way that we want because of our own disobedience. Sometimes life just seems to take twists and turns in, in, in the path or the road that I would call life. So my question this morning to us before we dive in is, what do you do when that happens to you? Where do you turn? Where is it that you go? How many of you have ever heard of a woman by the name of Kay Arthur? Kay Arthur, okay. I figured that most of the ladies in here would know. Kay Arthur uh, is a Bible teacher um, and uh, book uh, writer, author. A very gifted uh, lady that has been used by God for years and years and years in the Christian circle. And she tells a story in one of her books that goes something like this. There was a man who was deer hunting and he began following an old logging road nearly overgrown by the encroaching forest. He was cradling his rifle in the crook of his arm and it was nearly evening and so he was thinking about returning to camp. And as he goes towards the camp, a noise explodes in the nearby brush. And he looks up to see, and just by chance, a small blur of brown and white comes shooting up the road straight for him. And before he even had a chance to lift his rifle, as everything was happening so quickly, he looked down and there was a small rabbit sitting in between his feet. Now, he... He was there, crowded up against his leg and against his boots, and it sat there trembling all over, and it did not budge. Now, this was strange to the man, as he had been hunting in these woods several times, and wild rabbits are frightened of people. And it's not often that you ever actually see one, let alone have one come and sit at your feet. The man was puzzling over this, and another player entered the scene. About 20 yards down the road, a weasel burst out of the same bush. When it saw the hunter and its intended prey sitting at the man's feet, the predator froze in its tracks and its mouth was panting and its eyes began to glow red. The man then understood in that very moment that he had stepped into a little life and death drama that was taking place right before him in the forest. In this woods where he was hunting, the the rabbit was a fugitive on the run. It was exhausted by the chase, only moments away from death, and this hunter was his last hope of refuge, his last hope. Forgetting its natural fear, forgetting its caution, the little animal instinctively crowded itself at the feet of the man for protection from the sharp teeth of a relentless enemy. This little critter was not disappointed. The man raised his powerful rifle and he deliberately shot at the ground just beneath the weasel. And that animal seemed to leap almost straight into the air and then rocketed back into the forest as fast as its legs could carry him. And then for a little while longer, that little rabbit didn't stir. It just sat there, huddled at the man's feet, gathering in the twilight while the man began to speak gently to it. Soon, the fugitive hopped away from its protector and into the forest to live. 
As I began reading this, this passage out of one of K. Arthur's books, I began to ask these questions. Where do I hide when the predators of trouble and worry and fear pursue me? Church, where do you hide when your past seeks to destroy you? Where is it that you go for protection from temptation and corruption and evil when they threaten to overtake you? Church, where do we turn when our life is full of darkness and we can't see the light of day? Today, we're going to see in our passage of Scripture a fugitive on the run. That in the darkest experiences of our life, that's where we're going to discover God. That's where we're going to discover God. So if you're not there, turn with me to Genesis 16. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 16, verse number 1. And it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now I want us to stop right here. And the very first thing I want us to see this morning is that when we attempt to control our situations, our lives are infiltrated by the world. When we attempt to control our own situations, our lives will be infiltrated by the world. Sarai's frustration began to dominate her thinking and her actions here. Her frustration combined with a fear that stemmed from the fact that she was childless. And as she laments of her condition in this very moment, she begins to express her frustration. Look back at verse number two. She says to her husband, she says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Sarai understood that God was sovereign over her womb right here in this second of time as she's speaking to her husband because why? He had promised descendants to come through Abram and Sarai and they had not yet come after many, many years. So we see these words, the Lord has prevented me from having children as, a, as words of pain. Words of pain coming from a desperate mother. Pain that longed to hold a child in her arms that was her own. Pain of public shame of not being able to give her husband a child. The, the pain of blaming God for one's problems. Church, don't ever forget that unbelief is a sin. Do not ever forget unbelief is a sin and it's one that carries with it a lot of pain. I believe wholeheartedly that's why Solomon said in the book of Proverbs that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It was a desperate predicament for a woman in this day and age. To be barren was to be considered under the judgment of God. To, to, to be a woman of infertility was to incur the disfavor of a husband. Sarai's frustration begins to produce foolishness in her life. But we see that without any consultation with God, she proposes a foolish plan. Let's look at, at verse number two again. So because the Lord prevented me from bearing children, look at what she says to Abram. Go in to my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. She decides to produce a child through her maid, Hagar. Man, 
Sarah's logic is this. God promised me a child. And, and, and since I have no children, and since I cannot bear children, and since I'm too old to have children, it must be God's will to use another woman to fulfill this. Do you see what logic can do to us sometimes? And it's so easy, right? Christian, churchgoer, so easy to justify our actions of self-will as being a part of God's will. You guys ever think like that in your own life? You remember a situation where, where you base your own logic and human reasoning and, and circumstances and feelings on what you decided to do instead of going back to God? I've learned as I've been in the counseling world uh, for probably about six or seven years now as a part of ministry that human beings have an enormous capacity to rationalize their decisions. I've seen it time and time again where, where they have this enormous uh, capacity to rationalize their desires and their actions and even their own beliefs. And we must be very careful when we're tempted to take matters into our own hands without consulting God. We're going to see here in just a little bit that when faced with a dilemma, God should be the first person that we seek counsel and wisdom and guidance and direction from. Not our own resources. Sarai's foolishness begins to turn to her own fulfillment and she puts a plan into action. Look at verse number three. And it says that, oh, well, let's look at the rest of verse number two. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram... Uh, had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. And, uh, and Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So Sarai is giving her maid over to her husband to be a wife. She was legally entitled to do this. Sarai was able to do this with her servant, and she was acting well within the customs and the standards of that day. But it, she was acting independently of God. Don't forget this. It was wholly contrary to God's standard for marriage and sexuality. In this moment of time, she goes against what God's word states. And this entire behavior here is that of worldly thinking. We, we see over and over and over that what happens when we attempt to control our lives begin being infiltrated by worldly standards, by worldly priorities, by worldly values. And how much better do you think it would have been if Sarai would have just listened to God in the very beginning? How much better would it have been if she just trusted God to carry out that promise? How much better? She, sure, she should not have, certainly should not have considered giving a pagan, idolatrous Gentile to her husband to attempt to bear the promised Messiah. The one who would come from her lineage. Uh, I look at this passage of scripture and I, I feel like this is a worldly alliance if there ever was one. This one moment of scripture. The, the shame, though, is that Abram becomes an accomplice here with Sarai. He begins to follow along. Rather than expressing his, his leadership and expressing his trust, he agrees to the plan. Now I want us to take a small break here uh, for just a moment from the, the text, and I just want us to know something. So men, women, single, um, it doesn't matter in this room. I want you to listen up, and I want you to never forget something. A godly wife has a lot of wisdom for her husband. Don't ever forget that. A godly wife has a lot of wisdom for her husband, and there are many husbands that could learn the value of listening to the wisdom 
uh, that comes from their wife. But in saying that, so ladies, uh, don't take offense to this. In saying that, there is no wife that is unerring. Okay? There's no wife that is unerring. And Abram was responsible for his own sin and heeding the unwise, unbelief-based advice of his wife. We see this here. And look at what happens in verse number 4. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. He went and he followed along with the plan. Abram should have refused Sarai's schemes. He should have obeyed God's law. He should have believed the divine promise. And to attempt to produce the child through Hagar was a lack of faith in God's power and a lack of trust in God's word. He already said, I will make of you a great nation. So I just want to take a break here as well. And I want you to, I want you to write this down. I highlight it. Don't ever forget it. Tattoo it on your minds and your hearts. Be careful of who you're influenced by. Be careful. Christian, be careful of who you're influenced by. Mom, dad, grandparent, young person, be careful who you're influenced by. There are a lot of people in our culture that label themselves as believers, as Christians, and they are leading people astray. The book of Jude talks about, about those who come in and begin to speak false doctrine to people so that they're led away from God. And in the last days it will happen. And guess what? We've been in the last days since the moment that Christ ascended into heaven. So people are already here. People were there back then when Paul was writing, when Peter was writing, when John was writing. There were already people trying to infiltrate the ways of Christ in that very moment of time. So church, be careful who you're influenced by. Just because someone says they're a pastor doesn't mean that they're preaching truth. Just because they're over a church doesn't mean they're preaching truth. Just because they wrote a book and you can find it in the Christian sec section at Baker Bookhouse does not mean that it's truth. Be careful who you're influenced by. In this moment, Abram was influenced by his wife, but her perspective was entirely worldly. It was humanistic. It was self-willed. And she was not being spiritually mature in this decision. She was more concerned with having a child than she was doing the will of God. And the plan seems to be working. And then the plot thickens. The plot thickens. Sarah never counted on Hagar's reaction. Sarah never counted uh, on Hagar's own agenda in this situation. She, as, as, a, as, an, um, as a non-believer here, Hagar represented someone from a pagan nation. She used this unholy alliance to further her own interest. Nonetheless, we sit here and we hear this passage of Scripture and we see it and we've been taught it as children. If you've been in church any length of time and we are somewhat sympathetic to Hagar. We're sympathetic because she looks like the, the innocent victim of Sarai's schemes here. Why? Well, she's a non-believer, and so she acted as any worldly non-believer might act with no regard for God's moral standard whatsoever, ready to better herself for her own intentions. Right. The flesh. The world. The devil begin to play themselves through her, but out of it you're going to see that she's going to come to know God as her personal Savior, the one who redeems her in this situation. So I want us to look back at verse number 4 again. And he went into Hagar and she conceived, but look what happens. And when she saw that she had conceived, 
She looked with contempt on her mistress. She looked on Sarai with contempt because she had a child. Before she even gave birth, Hagar's attitude changed from obedience to opposition. Just like that. Why? Because she saw that she could do something that Sarai could not conceive. She saw in this moment here that immediately she began to think of herself as better and greater than Sarai. And the bad situation becomes far worse. You know, 10 years, she worked as Sarai's maid, and now she sees an opportunity to get ahead and to become more than just a servant. You know, by having a child by Abram, she would become Abram's wife. In their customs and their law, she would become Abram's wife. So by becoming his wife, she would then have influence. She would then have control. She would then have freedom. She would have power. But more importantly, she would have equality with Sarai. She would become equal. She would no longer be a slave girl that was bought when they were in Egypt. But it shows us over and over and over what happens when we fail to rely upon God. The world begins to infiltrate our life. The, 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 the world infiltrating our life brings us to a place where we begin to adopt worldly thinking like scheming and rationalizing and self-centeredness and, and selfish ambitions as we're told in the book of Philippians not to, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to but to put others' ambitions before our own. Paul was very clear with the church that the, that the culture getting in the mix of the believer would draw us further and further away from the gospel truths that we are to be living out with our lives. And we see this here in scripture that we will begin to practice the works of the flesh when the world infiltrates our lives. We'll practice the works of the flesh over and over. Paul talks about them. In Corinthians, you see them. In Galatians, you see them. In Romans, you see them. In Ephesians, you see them. In Colossians, you see them. Over and over, the works of the flesh, all of the things that are anti-Christ, all of the characteristics of the world are those things that speak against or go against truth. And the culture here in their time said it was all right for Abram to have a concubine. It was all right for him to have a child by another woman. Why? Everybody was doing it. You ever, you ever have a child say that to you? Well, why can't I do it? Everybody's doing it. I don't think I ever used that line on my wife, but I think my sisters did. I mean, on my, on my mom, but I think my sisters did. We see... In scripture that whenever a sexual relationship is established on any other basis than God's plan for marriage, it causes irreparable harm. It causes irreparable harm. You know, Abram's relationship with Hagar caused an immediate problem, not only between Sarai and Hagar, but between Sarai and Abram. And this, this section of scripture here, we learn that it's impossible to live for God and the power of the Spirit when we're living for self in the works of the flesh. It's not just talked about in the New Testament, the works of the flesh. We see it lived out in the Old Testament. I've learned um, also in my 32 years of life that if you act in the flesh, you will also react in the flesh as well. So look what happens in verse number five. And Sarai said to Abram, may the done or may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw me, or when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. So may the Lord judge between you and me. I want us to stop here. She's like, Abram, what are you thinking? Look at what you have done. 
I gave Hagar to you to produce a child, and that was it. That's all I wanted. But instead, you have turned her against me. Poor me. She hates me now. This is the attitude of Sarai, and she begins by reacting in the flesh and blaming Abraham, but then she passes the buck to God. Let God judge between you and me. Let God do it. Let, let God, and, and, and I, I love that she sits here, and in her pious language, she says, God will, God will tell us which one of us did the right thing and the wrong thing. Just, God will do it. It's, it's, God, God will take care of it. She's like, let God judge whether I'm the one that's at fault for, for offering the suggestion, or maybe you're the one at fault because you took my advice and you did it. That's what we are seeing here from Sarai. But as I sit here and I think about this, I thought to myself, why didn't she consider God before this? She waited till there was the mess that she got themselves in before she said, well, let God take care of it. Where was God before all? Where was her reliance on God's judgment when she dreamed up the whole scheme to begin with? Where was her reliance upon God and the promise that he had given to them? You know, I've found so many people come to this place and they begin to, to speak uh, with, with pastors or they'll begin to speak to counselors. And I have found more often than not that religious language is often used as a cover for thoroughly irreligious thoughts and motives, and actions. That's exactly what she does. The problem starts to arise. Oh, God's going God's to take care of it. Yep, God, I'm out, I'm out, I'm off. I'm, it's, all, it's all up to God now. But then we begin to see that Hagar also reacts in the flesh. She scorns her own mistress. The woman that, that she used to honor, the one that she used to obey. And then Abram. Abram comes on and begins to react in the flesh as well by becoming callous and irresponsible for his own actions. Look at what happens in verse number 6. In verse number 6, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. I'm not going to take care of it. You do it. You go and do it. I'm not going to punish her. This is your own fault, Sarai. So you punish her. And look what she does. She says, Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled. She fled. She leaves. She's your servant. You take care of the problem. What happened to those 10 years of faithful service? What happened to the relationship that they would have developed? What happened to the compassion and the care that they would have shown to the servant? Man, how easily we skirk responsibility. Each and every one of us, I think at times, where we, we take matters into our own hands, we leave out God, and then we don't like the consequences that follow, the consequences that come because of our actions. One minute we're acknowledging like Sarai, look at what God has done, and the next minute we're acting independent of him. Sound familiar? Maybe you know somebody. If you don't know somebody, it's probably you. Just trying to throw in a little joke, guys. I love that in the very beginning of this, Sarai acknowledges that the Lord has prevented her from bearing children, but she didn't consult God as to what to do about it. Not one time. Why not wait on God for guidance? 
Why not recognize his providential hand in this situation? Why, why wait until you've messed up and, and are in need of, of repentance? How often do we blame other people? How often do we even blame God for the situations that we ourselves got ourselves into? How often do we want to take the easy way out and let someone else deal with the consequences of our own actions? How easily we cast people aside with no concern at all for their welfare. Sarai's foolishness could not be easily remedied here. In this situation. Do you know this single act in Genesis chapter 16 started a rivalry between two groups of people that has lasted throughout history and has caused oceans of blood to be shed ever since? The Arabs and the Israelites. This one specific event some seven or eight thousand years ago in history and still to this day causes oceans of blood, and all of it was the result of one woman's foolishness. One woman. So when we attempt to control our situations, our lives are infiltrated by the world. So the second thing I want us to see this morning is that when we attempt to control our situations, our lives are turned upside down. Our lives are turned upside down. I want us to look back at the the rest of Verse number six, it says, then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled. There's something very important here. And in this section of scripture, Sarai's cruelty, cruelty began to collide at this, this moment in history with Hagar's pride. And all Hagar could think to do was to run away, to get away from the situation. Her life had gone from riches to rags in the blink of an eye. She went from being a maid to being a single parent in the blink of an eye. She went to become homeless, pregnant, and despondent, out on her own, discouraged away from everything. In this section of time, all of these conditions that we see that Hagar is dealing with are hard. Hard. Being a single pregnant woman is hard. Being homeless is hard. Being on the run is hard. Being single and pregnant and homeless and on the run is a recipe for disaster. Man, how quickly our lives can be turned upside down. Have you ever been in one of those places where your life was completely flipped upside down and you didn't know where to go, you didn't know what to do? One minute you're living in the lap of luxury and the next you don't even know where your next meal is going to come from. One minute you have a kind boss and and a great job, the next minute you're cast aside. One minute you're part of a loving family and the next you're caught in the middle of a feud. One minute everything looks rosy and then the next your entire world has been destroyed and it looks desolate, dark bleak how do you deal with that how do you how do you deal where do you turn when your life has been turned upside down well i've i've learned one thing you never do is run because your problems will always follow you 
One thing you never do is run into the wilderness like we saw here in Hagar. Why? Because the wilderness is no place when you're in trouble. The wilderness is no place you want to be when you're distressed and when you're desperate and when you're vulnerable and isolated and despondent. Why? Because in that moment you need protection. You need support. You need care. You need community. So look at what happens in verse number 7. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. You know, sometimes we react by fleeing as a fugitive only to find ourselves in the desert just like Hagar was, abandoned and alone. And when we hit rock bottom, those are the moments when God begins to step in, assuring us of his favor. And we see how he shows us that he's still in control of our life, even in those moments. You know, this is the first appearance here in the Bible where we see the phrase, angel of the Lord. It's the first time, 16 chapters in, where God comes onto the scene. It doesn't happen with Noah. It didn't happen with Enoch. It happened with a single, single, homeless, pregnant mother right here in Scripture. We see a mistreated woman in a whole mess, and God steps onto the scene saying, I see you, Hagar. I see you. I'm here. And look what happens I love this beautiful interaction that we see here. In verse number 8, and he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, real quick, I want us to note, when it says the angel of the Lord, this is what theologians call a theophany. It's a pre-incarnate version of Christ that steps onto the scene here to interact with a being. And we're going to see at the end that this was not some voice in the wind. This was not a burning bush as we see in Exodus. It says that I know you are a God who sees. Meaning that there was a presence in front of her and Hagar knew that this was God. We're going to see in just a minute. But I want us to know here the angel of the Lord asked a very important and insightful question to Hagar. Hagar's pride and, and misery, she acts without thinking, and he says, where do you come from? Where do you come from? And better yet, where are you going? You know, I was talking to my wife just the other day, and I told her, I was like, if we remembered those two questions, we would be saved from a lot of trouble as believers. Where do I come from, and where am I going? I come from the lineage of Jesus Christ as a believer. Don't ever forget that, Christian. And where are you going but the place of heaven, the place of perfection, the place where you get to be in the presence of God? Those two questions alone should prevent you from doing things in your own control. Those two questions alone should cause you to fall back on Christ every single day. Why? Because without him, you wouldn't be in the lineage of Christ. And without him, you would have no home in heaven. And so guess what? If you remember where you're from and where you're going, you will save yourself a ton of trouble, a ton. And we see here that he asks these questions, and she knew where she came from, but she had no clue where she was going. None whatsoever. Her life was full of uncertainty. She didn't know the future. She'd started down a one-way street, and it was turning out to be a dead end. But look what happens. Look what happens in verse number 9. She says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. 
And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Man, we see a beautiful picture of the gospel here. A beautiful picture of the gospel. The angel of the Lord is telling her, if you change direction, there is an inherent promise. There's blessing that comes for you changing direction. That moment in this scripture where we see the word return, some versions use the word repent. And that's, the, that's a great great word here. Why? Repenting means to turn away from sin and self and to turn towards Jesus Christ in an opposite direction. And she's being told here, return, return to your mistress. Go back, change direction, and there is a promise that is waiting for you. Man, not only an implied promise of protection, but he gave a staggering blessing to this woman. A staggering blessing. The unborn son of Hagar would be the father of uncountable descendants. Uncountable. You know, as, the, as this promise was fulfilled, Ishmael became the ancestors of the Arab people. Just as his half-brother Isaac would become the ancestors of the Jewish people. Do you know this makes the conflict that we see in our culture today between Arabs and Jews even more tragic in my eyes. It's more tragic. Why? Because they're brothers from the same father. And it started a, a bloody war. And we, we see that when we carry out our own independent plans without consulting God, life is turned completely upside down. When we're ambitious to improve ourselves, when we, when we want to get ahead without God's leading, we suddenly find ourselves in a desert place, just like Hagar. And the only solution was given by the angel of the Lord, repent, turn back, be obedient. You know, one of the hardest things to do in the Christian life is repentance. Nobody wants, to, nobody wants to come before the Lord. Nobody wants to go to, to their accountability, to their discipler, and say, I, I did all of these things wrong. It's not easy, but it's the right thing to do. So when we attempt to control our situations, our lives are turned upside down. But I want us to know this very last thing that we see here, that when we attempt to control our situation, our lives are still in God's hands. Our lives are still in God's hands. You know, after Sarai's foolishness and, and Hagar's flight into the wilderness, we begin to see God's favor. We begin to see God's favor here in this passage that, that when everything looked darkest, God begins to bring light. Look at verse number 11, and it says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. Ishmael was given a promise, a great promise, that not only in the number of descendants that he would have, 
But this is the first time in scripture that we see God give somebody a name before they're born. And not any name. But the name Ishmael we will see means God will hear. His name means God will hear. You know, God had a plan for this unborn boy and his descendants. God did not give a name to him without a plan for his life. We see it all throughout scripture that when God names something, he has a plan specifically in his will for that something. You know, I've been around Christian circles for all of my life. And one of the things that irks me and frustrates me, but also hurts me as a pastor, is that when I hear Christians say that they think they know God's plan for the descendants of Ishmael, for the Arabic people, I get so irked and frustrated when they say that God just wants to wipe them out because of their hatred of Jews, because of their hatred of Christians. And that reaction is never, ever found in the Bible, especially not right here. We see that God specifically commanded Hagar to go back, to stay in the story. And we can know that God's story for the Arabic people was not finished here in Genesis chapter 16. If anything, if anything at all because of Ishmael's name, God will hear. We should be prompted to pray for revival. We should be prompted to pray for spiritual awakening among the Arab people. Why? Because when they cry out, it says that God will hear. We as Christians are no better we as Christians are no better than the Jewish people. We are no better than the Arabs or the, the people who practice Buddhism or those who follow after Islam, those who consider themselves Muslims. We are no better. We are all sinners. And every single person, no matter where you are at in your life, deserves to hear of the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. So please, church, please. I am begging of you as your pastor, don't ever let me hear you speak ill of the Arabic nations. The things that they're doing are because they believe they're doing what's right in the eyes of their God. They're doing so in sinfulness, but guess what? Their sin is no uglier than yours and mine. Never. But even though, even though, There was a conflict that started. There's consequences that come. Consequences. Severe. Ishmael would become a wild man. The, the ill effects of what we see here in Genesis 16 uh, have stirred some of the most violent and, and murderous days amongst Arabs themselves. Do you know, statistically speaking, Arabs kill themselves more than they kill Jews and Christians combined? Arabs kill each other more than Jews and Christians combined in our world. Man, for their own sake, even more than ours, we should be on our knees praying God bring salvation to the Arab nations. We should be on our knees In the midst of, of darkness, in the midst of, of despair, God says to Abraham, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. 
look at this next verse. It's more, more than just God hears. So she, she called to the name of the Lord who spoke to her. She knew it was God. And she said, you are a God of seeing. You've laid eyes upon me in my situation. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. And therefore the well where she was sitting was called Bir Lahai Roy. And it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Hagar in this moment knew there was no mere angel who had just appeared to her. The angel of the Lord was the God who sees. The same one that was watching over Hagar. The same one watching over the yet to be born Ishmael. The same God that after meeting with El Roy, the God who sees me. Hagar knew that if God could be with her in the wilderness, he would definitely be with her as she went back to submit to Sarai. You know, it's almost as if Hagar said to God, you've looked upon me and now I can look upon you. The moment of salvation here in this story. And the face-to-face relationship with God transforms lives. She goes and does return with a submitted heart. We see that in the very last verse. She had to have told this entire story to Abram and Sarai. She had to go back and say that the angel of the Lord came to me and said, we must name this child Ishmael. She had to have gone, why? Abram's named the child Ishmael as Hagar had explained. How often in our lives do we get to a place where we, we're in the wilderness, we're dry, we're in the desert place, we're so far away from help. We meet with God, and we realize here what Hagar did. You know, Hagar just thought her circumstances needed to be transformed when in fact she needed to be transformed. It was all within Hagar, all within herself, the thing that needed to change. We, we seek to change our circumstances more often than we seek to change ourselves. A mentor of mine told me probably my second year of ministry, so a little while back. We were having a conversation one day, and I was really struggling with the situation that had occurred in our church, and I was trying to figure out how to handle it. And um, in, in the situation, I tried to defend myself. Uh, I, I tried to... Um, tried to get my, my mentor to see that um, I was just doing the right thing and it had offended somebody and it was because I blew off what that person had said and I just kept moving forward. And I was trying to change the circumstances of the situation. I was like, I'll go back and talk to him. How about I just do it myself and that way nobody else has to worry about it. I'll just take care of it. 
and he pulled me aside and and he goes, Josh, if you seek to change your circumstances, all you're doing is jumping from the frying pan into the fire. And I was like, what? I walked away and had no idea what he was talking about. And like another year went by and I still didn't know what he meant. And another year went by and another year went by and I was like, I was still confused and it seemed like it kept coming back up and kept coming back up and kept coming back up and I I was like, what on earth did he mean? And then it hit me. It hit me one day as I was reading my Bible and it just so happened to be right here in this very passage of Scripture. My mentor was trying to tell me that we need to be triumphant exactly where God has us. I'm like, what? God, that still doesn't make sense to me. What are you trying to tell me? How can I be triumphant right where you have me if I don't even know what that means? If I don't even know what that looks like? And God was like, read again. And I read through this this passage of scripture and I still didn't see it. And like six or eight months go by, and I remember sitting there, and I was having one of those days where everything was just going wrong. I couldn't get anything right. And I felt like I was just like Hagar with the fact that I wasn't a woman and single and pregnant. But I felt like I was Hagar in that moment, and I was out in the wilderness, and I had nobody. Nobody was there. I felt like I was on an island. And it hit me. It hit me that it was not a change of climate that I needed in my life. It was a change of heart. It was a change of heart. The flesh in me in that moment wanted to run away and I feel like that a lot anymore that the flesh in the flesh in me just wants to run away from everything every situation and every circumstance just just run away but God here in this moment of time he's saying I want to demonstrate my power in and through you I want to demonstrate myself so that I get the glory. And Hagar here in this moment is is saying, God, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go and submit to Sarai even when I don't want to. Why? Because I want people to see you. I want people to know hope that don't have hope. I want people to be healed who don't think that they can be healed. Christian, Those of you in this room who seek after and follow God, the promise that we have today was far greater than the one that Hagar received. It was far greater than the one that Sarai and Abraham received. Why? Because we have a wonderful promise that came because of the sacrifice of Christ. We have a promise that was given to us at the end of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said, and behold, I am with you always. I am with you always. Do you know in the Old Testament, 
the Holy Spirit was only used at certain times in certain situations. The follower in the Old Testament did not have Christ dwelling within them. Unfortunately, in that day and age, there was only a select few that could even enter the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of God. And those who attempted and they were thought unworthy were smote, they were struck dead. So maybe you're here today and you've forgotten about the God who sees. Maybe you've forgotten about the God who hears. Maybe, maybe you're here and it's time to submit in a difficult situation or a difficult circumstance and know that God sees you and hears you in that. Maybe, maybe you're in here and you're in the midst of, a, of pain because of a broken marriage, because of the loss of a loved one, because of a wayward child. Maybe because your job is going nowhere and you don't know what to do next. Maybe you're in the midst of a health crisis. God sees. God sees you. Maybe you find yourself where I found myself and you feel like just running away. God sees you. God hears you. And for those who are in Christ, God has met with you. He sent his son near to give hope. To give hope. And so even in the midst of, of life's pain and life's trials, in messed up circumstances, even in the midst of our own sinfulness, God sees. And God comes near because He hears you. And He wants to bring hope. And so, church, I, I ask of you today. What area of your life do you need hope? Is it your marriage? Is it your children? Your job? Finances? Health? Where do you need hope? Where, where do you need to cry out to God and know that he sees? Where do you need to remember the truths of God's word? Even when we've got ourselves into those situations. Where do you need hope today? Where do you need hope? Church, I um, was not planning on this, so I'm just going to kind of go with it because I feel like I'm supposed to. Um, I have been reading this passage of Scripture over and over and over again this last week, and... I told the prayer team last week that I, I really was struggling with faith. And again, I'm sitting here this week trying to read through this passage of scripture. And um, 
and just really struggling to put put my thoughts onto paper. Some of that has to do with the mental fogginess that, that has become of my life the last several months. And some because there are moments where things seem hopeless. I have learned far too often and more than I would even care to admit um, what happens when we attempt to control our circumstances and our situations. We have walked through many a fires in the 16 years that we have been together because there were many a times where we attempted to control our situations and our circumstances. And as much as I want to stand before you and, and tell you that every day feels hope-filled, um, that would be an absolute lie. It would be an absolute lie to stand before you and tell you that my life is always filled with hope, that our marriage is always filled with hope, that our family is always filled with hope. And I struggled through this passage of Scripture this week because I have struggled to see... <laughs> At times, how God's hand is still in, in this, in the thing that I call life, in the thing that we call marriage, in the thing that we call family. So church, I'm, I came to the end of this week, and last night I was not even sure that I was going to be here today. I was in so much pain, I writhed in pain all day long. I couldn't eat. I kept getting sick. Every time I got up, I felt like I was going to fall over. And I was like, God, what in the world is going on? I'm getting better, and yet I'm feeling physically worse. And I came to this passage of Scripture again, probably around 1130 last night. And something hit me for the very first time as I was looking at this passage of scripture. God's word came alive and melted off of the page and into my heart. And God said, I see you, Josh. I see you. I hear everything that you've been saying, all of your complaints, all of your praises, all of the blessings. I see 